This time on Voice Activated, we corner Greg Barron, the award-winning comic and co-author of He's Just Not That Into You, to talk about writing for a variety of formats, whether it's comedy or television or the big screen, and to talk about collaborating on a project. Usually the people I write with are the ones that put the studs in the ground and start building the house. I'm the one that decorates the inside of it and makes it an amazing place to live. It's what I do. But, you know, Amira, like when Amira and I write scripts, she's the one that sort of like can see the whole thing and she can remember everything that's happening. I, I, I can't remember from scene to scene what we said before, but I can get inside that scene and tell you exactly how this person is supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. And what I think this fight is about and why I think if we carry this over to this scene, then, it'll, you know, I like to do that stuff. So I usually need somebody. A conversation with Greg Barrett coming up. Plus, we get really, really mellowed out by listening to what scientists say is the world's most relaxing tune. And we'll let you decide for yourself. Just don't nod off, okay? And from the email slash Facebook message files, an interesting question about using the names of real people in your fiction and a comment from a teacher who's all about encouraging students to express through writing. It's all packaged together in this episode of Voice Activated. So here we go. Greg Barron is a comedian. He's a musician. In fact, this is one of the tracks recorded by his group called The Reigning Monarchs. That's Greg on guitar. And he's a very successful writer. He co-authored with Liz Tachillo the enormous bestseller, He's Just Not That Into You. He was a consultant for the hit television show Sex and the City. And his description of being the only straight male on the creative side of those meetings is pretty funny in itself. Personally, I can tell you that Greg's stand-up performances are some of the best that you will ever see. Gentlemen, you have to have a handshake. It's important to have a handshake as a man. I'm not into gender stereotypes. I mean, just pick something if you're going to do it. Don't just... (laughs) You know, I mean, a handshake should be pretty simple. Let's see you and me do it. Boom. Solid. One pump, eye contact. Boom. A for you, friend. A for you. Sure. Somebody brought you up right. Greg has been a regular guest on our radio show in Denver, the Dom and Jane show. And I've seen his stand up several times, but it was great to sit down and talk about everything from writing for television to the challenges of collaborating on a project and about test driving his material. We started by talking about something Greg posted on his website about how creative people, whether it's writers or artists, really have no control over how people accept the work. It's out of your hands. Let me just jump in by saying that you said something on your website that I think anyone who works in the creative world needs to hear, Um, whether it's music or it's art or if it's writing or or acting. You said, my job is to make stuff and let the pieces fall where they may. I don't get to decide how people feel about it, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. And I think that really is something that creative people struggle with, isn't it? Because we want to be able to control how others feel about what we're putting out there, but it's it's all it's usually out of our hands. Well, it's a really hard way to come to art having a decision about how you're going to be perceived in the world. You can't build anything from that perspective, you know. And my greatest success was an accident, so I know that I don't I don't get to decide how people feel about me. Um, that being said, um, 
it does give you then the freedom to go, well, then I guess I just am stuck just being me and I don't have to worry about it being hip or it being smart or it being cagey or it being, you know what I mean? There are times where I think sometimes as an artist, you see art that you like. Let's say I think Patton Oswalt is the greatest comedian ever or John Updike is the greatest author ever. I want to write like John Updike. Well, I'm not John Updike. I'm never going to think like him. I'm never going to have his experiences. I'm never going to be able to run, write a run rabbit run. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to do what Patton Oswalt does, even though I love it, even though I respond to it. And I think that's the kind of thing I want to be doing. I don't have those experiences. When I come to the microphone, I'm a different guy. I have a different life. I have a different upbringing, you know? Um, so, um, but that quote that you're talking about was because I had, um, I was shooting my second hour for Comedy Central. And um, my talk show had been canceled. A bunch of bad things had happened in my career. And I needed it to do something for me. I wanted it to sort of retell my story. I wanted it to bring me, because the, the, the advent of the book that I wrote, He's Just Not That Into You, had pulled me out of the comedy world. And I wanted back in the comedy world. And I thought if I made a special that was good enough, people would accept me in that way. So I sort of went at it like that. And, and you comedy. said you were at kind of at like the lowest point of your career. Kind of, yeah. Well, I just, you know, it, it, show business does exactly what, when you read the stories of like, you know, then my show got canceled and I lost this and I lost that and I lost that. That does happen. People, you know, th things happen in your life. You, you become unusable on some level. You become something that people already don't need anymore. They have a, they have an idea about who you are and then you have to rebuild it. Generally from the bottom. I mean, you generally have to go get back in line again, regardless of where you were. I mean, you have, I have a little bit more um, uh, visibility than other people. But anyway, I really put a lot of um, uh, energy into uh, deciding what that special was supposed to mean. And then Comedy Central buried it. And it didn't happen. And then I thought it was horrible. I decided that they were right and I was wrong and people didn't buy it. And so I was like, well, it must be terrible. Um, and then two months ago, it popped up on Netflix and people have been writing me daily. I got a beautiful email last night. So I don't know how people feel about things. I think I know and I don't. So now I just... I. I you know, the internet's a, a, a tough thing because you end up checking in on yourself. What do people think? How, how do people, do people like me? Let yes. me go read through. You were on a radio show yesterday with us and you were ta we were talking about the, how it's a world of comments now and, and people feel yes. as if they, they, uh, they should be commenting on everything, right. whether it's YouTube or, or uh, Facebook or something right. that they have to comment. And as a performer, you, are right in the crosshairs of a lot of people who feel like that they're an expert and they have to comment on everything that you're doing. Right. And um, and you also said something interesting about reviews because look at all the people who uh, are performers, whether they're writers or comedians or actors, and and that world is about reviews. Right. And and it you don't you don't want to read them, but many times people you're drawn to them. How do you deal with with that. Well, I've tried to, you know, um, I think it was Brad Pitt. I read an article years ago where he said, I don't read reviews. I don't seek any of that stuff out because if I'm, if I'm reading a good review, uh, it's just gonna, it, it's, it's reinforcing something that I don't already feel about myself, which isn't good. And if I'm reading a bad review, it's re reinforcing something I do feel about myself, which right. is not good. So I just need to stay out of that altogether. I can't go searching for myself and other people's opinions. And I was like, wow, that's a, that, that's a pretty profound thing to do as an artist. It's really not your business. You just have to keep laying it out there. So, but it's also hard because now, 
um, you can't help but get near it if you are using the new media to connect with your fans. So if I'm on Twitter and I am connecting, I'm going to run into something crappy. Something's going to cross my plate. If I'm on Facebook, I'm on, someone's going to post something that hurts my feelings. I'm going to run into it. So you just have to sort of develop a thick skin and, and, and hope um, that uh, – because, you know, I saw the Pearl Jam documentary the other night. And it, it, it was interesting because hearing it from another person, Eddie Vedder was talking about when they first got really popular and people loved them and hated them at the same time. People thought they were sellouts, that they were this, that they were that. And he goes, he goes, you have these people that adore you and these people that despise you and the, the people that despise you seem like they know what's what and the people that love you. And he goes, but then you go and there's all these people that come to your show. And in my mind, I'm like, that's all I'm doing it for. I'm just doing it for them. That's it. I'm not performing for the internet. I'm not performing for Facebook or Twitter. I can only perform for the people that show up. That's it. And so when I go to the club and people show up, that's who I'm doing it for. I can only write for the people that buy the book. I can only – they're the people that matter. The rest of it is just – it's just white chatter. noise. It's chatter. It's chatter and it's meaningless. And as an artist, you have got to figure out ways to block it out. You know, what some people don't understand is that, that stand-up comedy relies obviously on stage abilities. I mean that's going to play a big part in it, right? Um, but it's really all about writing. Yeah. Um, countless hours that you will spend working on your craft and working on your style. And, and some people want to be on stage and they want to make people laugh. But until you have the dedication and the commitment to sit alone in that room and, and write and create, and that's what a lot of people, whether it's writing uh, novels, whether it's writing essays, whether it's writing comedy, whatever, they don't understand that it's often about sitting alone in a room somewhere without any type of audience, without any readers, um, and just being alone with your thoughts for a long time. Well, it's funny, you know, stand-ups um, all have different ways of doing it. I have buddies that sit down and write into a book. I, you know, I've just come from a coffee shop. I have this book, but I don't do it that way. I do it reflexively. So, I'll have an idea based on an experience, and I'll make a note about it, just a note, mm -hmm. and then I'll go up on stage and start talking. And hope to God that something comes out of it. I usually, especially when I'm doing an hour, I'll put it in between two bits that I know are already solid. And then I'll go, all right, I'm going to try this. And then I just start. And, and you, I hope. you can build off on that for the next time that you try it, right? Right. But then I go and write it down. Like then I go this part. Oh, I said this. This worked. Oh, I'm going to add this line. So I build it on stage. I write on stage. I've never just – I've never sat down and written a bit. And for me – I have to have a point of view, so something has to happen almost experientially. You know, what I mean, like I have to, I have to run into my wife's free pass at the gym for that to be a story. I can't make something right. like that. I, my my imagination does just doesn't show up for me. I have to go out and live. I have to have experiences, and I have to know what my point of view is. When we wrote, he's just not that into you. When the idea came up to write a book, I was I said no immediately. I don't want to write a book. Because, because I it's thought, not your style of creating. Right. And, they, and I thought they were asking me to literally sit down and go, all right, ladies, listen. If you're going to go out with guys, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm not going to write a book like that. And then Liz said, no, 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 no. I'll ask you questions. I'll do the – I'll create the framework. You'll just answer questions. And I thought, now that I can do. It's like an interview. That I can do. And, I can, and then I had to find a point of view that didn't make me sound like some sort of wannabe authority. And I thought, I will answer these questions as though they're being asked by my sister. Because with my sister, I know exactly how I feel about her and what it would be like for her to date a jerk and how I could 
and how I could best connect with her. So I had to find a point of view. So I found a point of view and a way of doing it, and I think that's why it connected. I didn't try to answer. You can't write an answer to a person you don't know. So you have to have some. You can't write to someone you don't know. Even when I'm writing, I have to find who am I writing to. You know, sometimes I'll, my sister, who is a, a great laugher, uh, my but my but one of my best friends, the guy I do a podcast with, Dave Anthony, is a great laugher. So if I want to if I want to write and I want to know something's good, I'll literally call them and say the thing to them, knowing that I'll probably get a laugh, or if I get a laugh from them, I'm on the right path. You know, so that I, then I oh, oh I know what my point of view is. I'm trying to make Dave laugh. I know how to do that. And generally, Dave to me is as funny as talking to any audience, and so I you know uh-huh. that's how I sort of approach it. It's taking a long time to figure that out. Okay, so you've written books. You've written best-selling books. You've written stand-up material. You've written for television, uh, including Sex and the City. You've written music because you're the front man for a, a band. It's a ska surf band. Yeah, right? yeah. It, but instrumental, so no lyrics. The Reigning Monarchs. Right. So it's a bunch of different little compartments in your head, isn't it? Right. Because it's, they're like little bubbles inside your head. Um, and so you kind of have proved to a lot of people who are maybe coming up into the writing world, whether they're writing music or writing, trying to write for television or trying to write books, that you don't have to live in one little bubble. No, I mean, look, and you know, isn't, and isn't that a mis uh, a misconception that people have that you have to find the one thing you're good at and just do that? And you kind of disprove that, right? I do think when you're starting out, you should pick something. For instance, I when I got to Los Angeles, I was playing in a band and I was trying to get writing jobs, and I and I uh, uh, was doing stand up. And I was just sort of a mess. I was young. I was all over the place. I was doing a lot of drinking at the time. And when I got sober, I said, you know what? Just do stand-up. Just get good at that. The other thing, we can all – we can all. You, I need, you need a, um, a rocket. You need something. You need something to, to say, this is what I am, and then everything else will fold in underneath that. So I primarily – so I just put it down and said, I'm going to – I got a real job. You know, I got a I got a real job working in a catering truck, and then I did stand up every night, and that's all I did, and that's all I did, and that's all I did, and that's all I did until I came up with a one man show called Mantastic, which was my first HBO special that was directed by Michael Patrick King, and Michael Patrick King felt that I was uh, had the kind of point of view that would help him when he would then go on to work on Sex and the City, and so boom, now I'm a writer. Okay, now I'm over there. I'm consulting. I'm not actually writing scripts, but I'm consulting. But now I'm considered a writer. So now. My wife says, why don't you try writing something? So my wife and I, we write a script. So, you know, the, these things sort of came in afterwards, but I needed, I needed some direction. You needed an anchor. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. Whitney Cummings, who, you know, it's funny. When you listen to comics right now, I, I, I love what's going happening with her right now because so many comics are sort of angry with her. Because what Whitney did was she went on the road and she, 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 she sort of got famous from being on Chelsea's show. Uh, she got famous from being on the road. She got famous for being hot. She got famous for being a little bit dirty. And she went on the road. But when she was on the road and we were texting each other and, you know, twittering each other and saying hi, friends, she was writing, 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 writing. And this season she has a show that she's on. She has a show that she wrote. And she has a talk show in development because she actually did the work. And there are a lot of comics that are like, well, Whitney's not funny or Whitney's this. And I'm like – Dude, just do your own work. You know, I mean, you. How can you take something from somebody who? Look, whether you like her art or not, she sat down and did the work, and look what happened. You know what I mean? She didn't. She wasn't out 
getting drunk after shows or, you know, complaining that she wasn't getting auditions or like that. She did the work. Yeah, we called it, it's bits, it's butt in the seat, right? She kept her butt in the seat. She did. She stayed there and she did the work and I, I, I admire her for it. You know what I mean? I didn't see Whitney. I saw uh, Two Broke Girls. I think it's great. Michael Patrick King, in fact, is the executive producer of that show. I think, you know, a lot of comics are just determined to do stuff. And they also know, they also know you can't, you can't do this at 65, probably. So what are you going to do? What are the other things you're going to do? How else are you going to build your house? You know. You were on uh, my radio show the other day, and I said something to you about relationships. Because it's not only, it's, well, first of all, it's a universal theme, right? Yes. And it's an important element in our show. But as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, you know, Greg has got to be sick to death of talking now about relationships. Am I right about that? I mean, do you get to a point well, where the relationship books have, have taken it to the point where that's all anyone asks you about now? I think unless you get in that world, you don't realize that there's just only so much to say about it. There really is only so much you can say about it, and, and there's no new news. And I think people are, because I was, because I was part of, you know, as far as relationship books go, I don't think there's been as impactful a book in the last 10 years as he's just not that into you. I'm not taking credit for that. I'm just saying it hit in a way that it, it found a space that hadn't been occupied. It was a book about women from a dude co-signed by other women that came through the HBO, Sex in the City, um, you know, Oprah funnel. So all these things combined to make this thing a super hit, right? And what's beautiful about the book is the simplicity of it. It's just simply looking at something. And I say this, I talk about this in my act a little bit. 99.9% .9 of self-help is the same thing. It's all the same thing. Are you doing something stupid? Stop. That's it. And then these books then prescribe ways in which you can go about stopping. Right? But a, a diet book is the same thing. Are you eating bad food? Stop. Right? It's all just stop the behavior you know that's killing you, hurting you, wrecking you, wrecking other people. Stop it and try and figure out new behaviors, right? So it's pretty simple in getting relationships. People like to complicate it, and, then, and that's when I know, well, you don't want to solve this problem, and I don't want to spend any more time with you. And so I find it to be – because what I liked about it was that it is, the book is only 174 pages, I think. And it's the same message all the way through. If a guy is – if, if, a, call you, if, a, if a guy is not calling you, if he's not treating you the way you want to be treated, if he doesn't do the things you like, doesn't the other thing is it doesn't make him a bad guy, just not the right guy for you. He doesn't know how to be that for you, and he's never going to change because unless he wants to, and you waiting around for it is you wasting your time. I don't think that that is an original thought. I just think it is a thought that 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 we. That, that I think that that's my point of view. It sounded interesting coming from me. I got to be on Oprah. If it hadn't been for years of already being on television and being on stage, I wouldn't have been as good as I was on Oprah, which was a very simple task for me to be funny and glib with these girls and you know and and love them because I genuinely love people and I genuinely believe in them. So my whole thing is, why wouldn't you want your life to be awesome? And and a lot of people are like, well, I can't make my life awesome. And I'm like, well, I feel sorry for you. Then we're done. I don't know what else to say to you. you know. So when people want to talk about it, I'm like, I've so, I feel like I've talked about it. And then we wrote another book about how to get through breakups because so many people were breaking up. And then people were like, how do you meet people? So we, we created this third piece called It's Just a Bleeping Date. And it's really about just finding, finding the love within yourself to like yourself and be happy being alone. When you get to that place, someone will probably come along and ruin that with their love. But it's not until that point that you can find something that's right. really valuable. You know, and I, and I, I, do, I, do, I am articulate in this area. 
Why, I don't know. I have no idea why. It is an area that I found it very easy to write in. But to a certain extent, I also don't want... I think there's a lot of shaman. I think there's a lot of um, people that take advantage of you with books. I think there are people that are just in it for the money, and I I don't like that, you know? And it's not... It, ultimately, it's not as funny as it could be. You know, it, there's, a, there's a sadness that runs along with self-help. It just is the nature of the beast. So... When we had a talk show and we were trying to make it funny, you couldn't. These are real people with real problems. And even though I could say funny things, these people are having real, genuine problems. And there's no way to make that hilarious. It's not going to be The Daily Show. It's not going to be Letterman. It's going to be closer to Ricky Lake. And I don't want to live. You know, so that was, I think that was the part of it. So that's when it comes down to talking about relationships, that's the way I feel about it. You know, And it's maybe universal, but at the same time, each time somebody goes through something that's catastrophic... To them, it's never happened to anybody before. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's suddenly new and different. It might have happened to everybody on the planet, but your brain doesn't think that way. Like, I'm the first person to feel this way. I'm the first person to go through this kind of pain. I'm the first. It's so personal that we can't even see it in other people. I mean, I've been going through... You know, it's probably why when we see our friends in a bad relationship, we can tell them, but when they're in the middle of it, they can't see it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, um, and a part of them doesn't want to see it, and some people enjoy being in their problems. But the other thing is, you're right, it is an absolutely unique experience to them. And it is very personal. Uh, and they want to share it with you because they don't uh, – it's like when you first fall in love, too. When you first, and you're like, I'm the only person that's ever fallen in love. This, we are the greatest couple that's ever been. People have never known a love like this. You know, I mean, that's, what, that's the way that feels. That's, what's, that's the well, beauty it of it. That's the euphoria. Should, right. Yeah. And that's the euphoria of it. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's only so much to be said. And at some point, as an artist, I just wanted to move on. I wanted to move the dialogue. You know, I mean, now I get a lot of questions from dudes because the dudes have sort of returned a little bit as my stand-up has sort of become a more focal point of my career. And, you know, I find it interesting talking to men about this stuff. And I wouldn't be against writing a book for men in a very funny you know, sort of silly way, um, and because I do like writing, I when I when I get out of my way and remember, I don't have to write like anybody else but myself, and that the way I, you know, you read um, a million little pieces by James Fry, which there was a lot of you know huzzerai about that book and its truth and all that, but it's a well written book, it's a fun read. The guy doesn't punctuate; he writes his own way, he just writes his own way. He just decided this is it. You know, when you look at the truly great artists in the world, they just don't care; they just do what they have to do. You look at Jack White from the White Stripes and you listen to that music and you listen to those early albums and you're like, this is a guy that can, is just barely playing the blues and it's kind of good and kind of terrible at the same time. But he's doing it with such purpose and such an attack and he's quite sure that Jack White is right that you just love it. He's just decided this is awesome and you've, you've agreed because that's the way the art was created in such a way. And I think sometimes you just have to push through the... I don't know if I'm doing this right and just do it and let it be ugly and broken and weird because it's yours. It'll get better if you it'll you'll evolve it. I know it'll evolve because I'm a much better stand up than I was even 5 years ago. I get better all the time. I learn new tricks because I continually stay at it and I'm I allow it to be sloppy. Last night I told a story that I knew had no ending to it. And I said to the crowd, this has no ending to it. So when I finish, we'll be in a weird place. <laughs> and they laughed. And then we were in a weird place. And then I started with something else, you know. I, I didn't have to – the show didn't have to be perfect. It just had to be real. I think people pr prefer real to perfect. I agree with that. You've co-written books with other people, including your wife. Yes. Right? Does the compromise sometimes kill you? I mean, I've had people request before that I co-author something with them. And, and I've been reluctant because to me, writing is a – is a solitary thing. But some people like you 
can collaborate without any problem. What is, uh, what's your recipe for a healthy collaboration? You talked about the, the back and forth that you did with Liz. Right. right. But I'm, I'm going to assume it, they're not all like that. You probably didn't. Did you do it that way with your wife? My wife and I, it's a little bit tougher um, because we're also running a family and we're boyfriend, girlfriend, and we're all the different things that we are inside of our relationship. Um, with Liz, it was just really easy. Liz, you know, I'm – usually the people I write with are the ones that put the studs in the ground and start building the house. I'm the one that decorates the inside of it and makes it an amazing place to live. put on the finishing touches. It's what I do. But, you know, Amira, like when Amira and I write scripts, she's the one that sort of like can see the whole thing and she can remember everything that's happening. I, I, I can't remember from scene to scene what we said before, but I can get inside that scene and tell you exactly how this person is supposed to behave mm-hmm. and what I think this fight is about and why I think if we carry this over to this scene, then it'll, you know. I like to do that stuff. So I usually need somebody. Um, I've never I mean I, I wrote a script by myself uh, last year because uh, uh, it was requested that I have my own um, script uh, and it was insane and both my manager and my wife were like this is good and I don't understand it at all and sometimes I just need somebody I mean I'm going to continue to work on it but but I um, so that's so that's how I do it you know I need somebody usually to write it's not with. like they write one chapter you write one chapter it's not a back and forth like that is what you're saying well once we get the the outline together yeah usually what will happen is Amir will write and I'll write on top of it you know with Liz um, we just went back and forth back and forth and she sent she basically put that whole book together I mean and I have credited her before I mean you know, there's no book without Liz Liz really I mean it was her idea Um you know, she was the driving force behind it. I was resistant to wanting to even get involved in that world because I didn't understand what we were doing, and I didn't think anyone would take it seriously, and I didn't think anyone would want to read it, and I was wrong. Were you the most surprised man in America? Yeah. Were you? I was surprised, and I remember when I when I the thing that was interesting about it was it was that weird. Uh, it wasn't like a deal with the devil, but you know, uh, it's like well, you're gonna about to become incredibly famous, uh, and you're gonna make a big chunk of money. Uh, but you are not going to do it doing the thing that you want to do. It, you're, it's not going to be being in a band, and it's not going to be doing stand-up. It's going to be as a self-help author. And the second I got off Oprah, I remember we went back to the hotel, and it was all, everyone was just blah, 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 blah. And I looked out the window, and I went, what did I just do to my stand-up career? Literally. I was like, what did I just, like, this is going to be far bigger than anything I've ever done. And I've just spent 15 years trying to build a stand-up career. I just put out Uncool. I was trying really hard to be... A stand-up, and now I just did something that was going to wipe that clean. People were not going to know about my stand-up. Well, plus on top of that, with the stand-up, every week you can be somewhere performing. You can't put out a new book every week. No. So that is your everyday job that you are saying, what did I, what have I done? And then when those people come, what are they going to expect from the stand-up? And then what, and then what are the people who like my stand-up going to expect? And I lost a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just sort of wrote me off because a couple of years ago, I went on a podcast, a very popular podcast called Never Not Funny, um, uh, that a comic named Jimmy Pardo does. And uh, I literally, like, the next day, I got emails like, I didn't know you still did stand-up. I didn't know you were stand-up. I didn't know you were funny. I didn't know, you know. And and because because Jimmy's podcast broadcasts specifically to comedy nerds, hardcore comedy fans, there was a lot of, like, wow, I didn't realize, oh, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, 15 years and nothing. So it was it was a weird trade off because I didn't I hadn't planned on this other thing. And I also just didn't take like a duck to water to the self-help world. Like, OK, cool. Well, then that's the end of stand up. I'm going to be this guy now. I'm going to be Dr. Phil. 
I, I, I didn't want to be that, you know. So it was, it, you know, it was an interesting thing. But when I read the book, I, I love the book. I love it. It's it's funny. It means well. It's the way that I would want. It, it was. It's how I wish more self help books were written, with just more love and more levity and 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 giving the person credit for understanding what you're saying, and um, and not trying to bog it down with, you know, this is why I wrote this because when I came up with this concept, it's like oh horseshit. Just give them the information. Right. Don't don't put the secret a hundred pages in. Tell them right away. Like I like to say, we put the answer on the cover. <laughs> Don't buy it. You know? All right. So what's left for you? I mean, what are you aiming for next? You scored well on stage and on TV and uh, the like big to, screen and print. What's the next challenge? I'd like to, uh, I, I'd like to continue to make music. Um, my wife and I wrote a screenplay adaptation of our second book. And we didn't sell the rights to the book because we thought, let's try and make a movie ourselves. So we're... Uh, with a production company right now trying to get a movie made. Um, you know, I think I'll write some more books and self-publish them. I'm really into this idea of doing things. You were talking with me about the, the e-book. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, you hate to see real books go away, but these, you know, the bookstores are closed. Like, it's that thing, this happened a little while ago with the record industry where people were sort of like, people are always going to want to hold something. They're not going to, not everything's going to be on iTunes. No, everything's going to be on iTunes. Oh, whoops, we were wrong. You know, I mean, yes, there is that collector that wants to buy albums and that sort of thing. So with books, I think it's going to be the same thing. I, I literally think that when, when uh, probably when my kids have kids, that everyone will just go to school with a tablet, and the tablet will have all the books in it, and there won't be hardbound books anymore. Uh, they're already doing that. They're already doing it. They're already it. doing it yeah. in some schools. Yeah, So and it makes sense. I mean, that's, you know, but it, it's... So and my feeling is then anyone can be an author just like anyone can have a podcast. Anyone can make a record these days. And I think there's something interesting about that, being able to sell a book and be able to sell it inexpensively. But from your – so if I make 50 cents on a copy of um, uh, He's Just Not That Into You, which is what I make, 50 cents a copy. It's not that much. 52 cents, I think. Um, I make $5 off of a copy and I sell it for $5. My wife and I make $5 or whatever off of a copy of It's Just a Bleeping Day. Yeah, the date. business model is upside down. Yeah, I don't have to sell as many books. I can sell it to people that really want it. You know, um, uh, I don't have to do as much press. You know, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if it works or not. People might not be interested at all. We might only, I only might only make $5. But I do think there's something interesting about being able to do that, to start your own brand, be able to move it out yourself, put it through your own website, be connected with your own readers, have a relationship with them. I think there's something, you know, exciting about having your own sort of mom and pop shop. It's like That's Rick the Barrett idea. Incorporated is what it is, really. I love the idea of figuring out some kind of business I can run out of my house so I can be home, you know, occasionally go out and do some stand-up. But I really love being home. I like the idea of doing something. I mean, I like clothes. I want to design clothes, you know. I, you know, we sell a lot of T-shirts because of the podcast, and I design all the T-shirts, and I design all the band's stuff, and, you know, um, the band sells a lot of T-shirts, so we do that kind of thing. So eventually I'd like to do something like that. You know, I there's there's just too much to do in life to stick to one thing for me. You know, there's just too many possibilities. There's just too many fun things to do. I'd love to write a movie. I'd love to. I'd like maybe like to direct a movie at some point. I don't know. Let's see. I'd love to make one first. That's Greg Barrett, who, by the way, has his own podcast that he hosts with Dave Anthony. It's called Walking the Room. If you enjoyed what we talked about today on Voice Activated, feel free to post a link to this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. 
and please tell your friends all about it. Upcoming episodes of Voice Activated feature conversations with Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Colby Calais, best-selling author John Shores, and comedian Jake Johansson. I'm in Nashville. We're driving around in Nashville. It's not even important that I was in Nashville, except, well, Nashville. It's a good place. That's where the country music is coming from, if you ever want to stop it. Um, <laughs> that's where you have to go. Um, Be sure to subscribe to Voice Activated inside the iTunes store. It's free. I usually like my important scientific announcements to involve either something out in the cosmos or some big tech news or even fascinating archaeological finds. But I have to admit that I'm also a sucker for the the quirky stories. And how do you not read a story with a headline that says, Band creates the most relaxing tune ever. It's an honor, I guess, that has been bestowed upon a British group called Marconi Union. Three guys out of Manchester who worked with sound therapists. And what they did is they crafted an eight-minute piece of music that supposedly uses scientific theory to help you reach nirvana. The idea is that the song, called Weightless, somehow synchronizes your heart rate, your breathing, and your blood pressure. And before you know it, you're in the relaxation zone. I'm sure you're enjoying it right now, aren't you? Uh, I hope you're not driving. You're not driving right now, are you? My first thought was that I was on a massage table somewhere. And sure enough, when I dug a little bit deeper into the story, I saw that the study was commissioned by a company that makes bubble bath products. And I'm not making that up, by the way. Oh, the rest of the top five of most relaxing songs also had a track by Enya. That's not surprising. And even one by Coldplay. Okay, to close out this episode of Voice Activated, off we go to the email and message folder. David in Colorado wrote, What are the legal ramifications of using the name of a real person that you know in your novel? Could I be sued? Well, first off, I'll give you the usual disclaimer. Okay, David, I'm not an attorney. And I cannot offer actual legal advice. But speaking from an author standpoint, I can tell you this. And by the way, this question comes up quite often. So apparently a lot of writers think about this. My short answer is there's nowhere near enough advantage in doing it to counteract any potential negative fallout, right? I mean, suppose you've got an axe to grind with someone at the office who's a dirtbag. And you think, well, I'll get even with them. I'll create a jerk in my novel and... I'll assign them that same name. So, you know, you feel good for about 10 minutes, but then you might also be tempted to describe your character using similar you know, physical qualities or even particular mannerisms. And to me, you're just setting yourself up for trouble. And, you know, really, if I truly dislike someone, the last thing I want to do is splash their name across a book that I, I hope will someday be read by millions Why give them even more attention than they deserve? And if it's the name of someone you like, then I think it's better to just maintain your friendship with them and keep your personal life and your writing life separate. If they really mean that much to you, then write a thank you to them in your book's acknowledgments. So, David, I say don't do it for any reason. Besides, creating new character names, I think, is one of the more enjoyable parts of writing fiction. So I think you should embrace that. And finally, a Facebook message from a teacher in Oregon who asked to remain anonymous. She said, thanks for your article sometime back about the definition of writing. 
I have so many parents who insist that their child's journal or blog isn't, quote, real writing, end quote. And like you, I think that's a shame. Whatever people can do to encourage creative expression, whether it's a teacher or a parent or a friend, is vital to the intellectual growth of a young person. End of message. You know, to the teacher who posted that comment, all I can say is, here, here. Uh, and I probably should repost that article because it, it did get a lot of uh, response, uh, especially when it was first posted. You know, a student or anyone for that matter first dips their toe into the creative pool. So why don't we encourage them instead of saying, uh, that doesn't count? I don't think that makes any sense. This topic has legs, you know, and so much so that I think we might address it in full on a future podcast, maybe with one of our author guests. We've got several good ones coming up. If you have a question or you just want to sound off about the creative side of life, find me on Twitter at HeyDomTesta. That's at HeyDomTesta, hashtag voice activated. Or if you're more comfortable with old-fashioned email, it's voiceactivated at profoundgroup.com. Voiceactivated at profoundgroup.com. And snail mail address for you, voice activated, P.O. Box 370567. That's Denver, Colorado, 80237. Voice Activated is a copyrighted production of Profound Impact Group, and all rights are reserved, which is simply a fancy way of saying that we own it. Thanks for listening.